When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hamia. And today with our special guest, Fred Studeman. Hello. Fred is the literary editor of the Financial Times and is joining us um, for a special episode on the recently announced Booker Long List for this year. We're surrounded by all 13 of the books here, laid out on the table, and not all of them yet available to the public. Not meaning to uh, sound smug or anything, but we've got them all. So first of all, let's just hear the full uh, long list. Joe. And the books are... (laughs) Well, two days ago. A Spell of Good Things by Ayobami Adebayo. Old God's Time by Sebastian Barry. Study for Obedience by Sarah Bernstein. If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffrey. How to Build a Boat by Elaine Feeney. This Other Eden by Paul Harding. Pearl by Sean Hughes. All the Little Bird Hearts by Victoria Lloyd Barlow. Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. In Ascension by Martin McInnes. Western Lane by Chetna Maru. The Bee Sting by Paul Murray, and The House of Doors by Tan Tuan Eng. Thanks very much, Joe. Fred, you were a, a judge of the International Booker Prize this year, 2023. Any idea how the longest might have been arrived at? My sense is that oh, what I've heard is that long lists aren't too painful because most people get their favourites on there. It's, it's, it's the short list where the bloodshed begins. Uh, sure. Well, uh, I, I mean, obviously, the, the understandable proviso, I can speak for myself and my experience of the International Booker, which is a wonderful prize, uh, it, it, slightly different to the uh, original Booker. Um, in terms of how it, it, it's approached, obviously. Um, so was it easy? It was, very, well, it was certainly very cordial in that we, there was no sort of um, screaming and, and fighting and storming out of rooms because, not least because we did quite a lot of stuff online, so that would be pointless. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's I think not we the same did. cancelling a Zoom call. I, what I was really struck by was the, the more that we zeroed in to, to land on this uh, long list, runway, if you like. I was struck with how much we concurred, actually, and that sort of um, made that choice easier. There were some, there was some back and forth. I mean, there was one book where one judge really did not like it. And so it was done, as I say, quarterly, but it was made quite clear that they had a big issue with this one title. But other than that, I can't recall any um, big rows. And I think the long list is it's, it was sort of, to be pretend, you know, to use an overused word, curated a bit, in that we were conscious of what we were doing with the long list or what we thought we were going to try and do with the long list was to sort of be a bit broader in the presentation in terms of giving 
uh, readers and 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 people who follow these things a sort of a, a wider sense of what was around in translated fiction in that period in which we were judging. Uh, so you do take other things into consideration, and that might in turn influence the decisions you make down the line. And that you say, look, if we really feel we need to give some attention or a voice to that writer, or well, actually, you're not judging the writer; you're judging the book. Um, that the consequence of that may be that something else that is very good um, drops off, and that may be another answer to this whole vexed question of why did so and so not make the long list? Because if in their mind they were thinking they needed to structure something that gave range, balance, whatever you know, whatever I don't know what they in their own minds were choosing because they would have done that as a as a jury uh, among themselves. I could see that you know having. That effect. Right, what's your, what's your, what was your initial reaction to the long list? Well, I, really uh, very interesting. I mean, there's a, several names that when I saw it, I immediately recognized, and some of them I've, I've read a couple, and, and I was not surprised to see them. Uh, and my colleague uh, on the book's desk, Laura Battle, has been championing Sebastian Barry for months now and okay. said that she's threatened to eat all manner of headgear if it doesn't make it through, so she's still <laughs> spared eating her hat. Um, Good. I think it's interesting. I mean, we may come on to it. Having said, I recognise some names that I assumed might be in with a shout. It's interesting to see the ones that, as ever, one thinks should have and, and didn't. Oh, should, um, should, we, should we just do that straight away? I don't think we're allowed to use the word snub. But no, I don't about, think it is what a were snub. You, what were you surprised not to see on well, the list? I, don't, I mean, if you, Rushdie, I suppose. Rushdie would be one. And also, we can maybe talk about this as to whether... As a judge, one should take in other factors, which obviously, given the terrible year that he's had, um, might be relevant in his case. But, you know, we've had, um, I mean, Eleanor Catton's book, um, Burnham Wood, which yeah. we were very, you know, in favour of, Anne Enright. Um, I mean, Zadie Smith, I haven't read. I don't know. Have you read it? It's, no, it's, it's not it's, out now. I think we're in the clear there. I think we're in the clear there, I think uh, copies are available. Uh, Deborah Levy? would be another name that I think some people thought might be um, in with a shout. And as you probably will gather, I mean, Tom Crew had a massive uh, sort of debut moment earlier this year. But not been a good year for the Americans, we will No, well, I think that to. would be, to sort of the second bit of my answer to your question would be, I noted with interest, if I've done my sums right, there are four Irish authors. Yeah. And I mean, that's... Uh, Really interesting, I think, because Ireland more generally, not just this year, but, and I don't want to just group it around Sally Rooney, but um, has been having a sort of real purple patch. No, that's and a, yeah. I'll tell you a funny anecdote. I was in Scotland a, a year or two ago, and you're now going to say that we've got a couple of Scottish authors on this long list. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, I was in Scotland, and there was this sort of element of grumpiness and sort of like, why is all the why have the Irish got all the attention and what's it what's what have they got that we haven't got and you know because the other thing I think is interesting is they've gone for four debuts so mm -hmm. that may be the sort of corollary to the answer of who isn't on the list yeah so it sort of feels fresh and different it doesn't feel bonkers you know <laughs> which would have been you know. They should maybe put that on the posters. It yeah. doesn't feel bonkers. Anything you, uh, immediate reaction, Joe? I certainly thought it sort of followed on from the spirit of last year's long list, which was also full of new names and, and quite wide ranging. It does sort of make me think about the idea of a book, a long list in general, sort of changing in function as time goes on of what it signals to the world. And yes, I think now we're probably in a period of long lists heralding 
lesser known talent or, or talent that maybe hasn't been particularly well acclaimed up to this point. Interesting. And any, any, you were just, I, was, I must say I was disappointed about Eleanor Caton. I thought that's a fantastic book. Yeah. A bit less, um, a bit less surprised about Salman Rushdie. I mean, I know there was a, a yeah. case to be made. Yeah. I must admit, I think the, um, you know, if there was an entry for a parody of a Salman Rushdie opening sentence, it, you know, this would be a pretty good entry. On the last day of her life, when she was 247 years old, the blind poet, miracle worker and prophetess Pampa Campana completed her immense narrative poem about Visnaga and buried it in a, in a clay pot sealed with wax. And that actually is the opening <laughs> sentence of that book. And it, it, for me, that, that was the primary appeal of that book, really. It was almost nostalgic, seeing the old boy still still doing it, but um, rather than... And anyway, uh, let's let's move on to um, the books themselves in, in, I was going to say, a bit more detail, but not, not yeah. loads, uh, given the time constraints. And um, we've broken them down into four batches of increasing randomness. The first one hangs together quite well, which is the four Irish books. Um, obviously Ireland, um, as you're suggesting. I, I think this this cliche that Irish writing is having a golden age is, is a cliche because it's true. Yeah. I mean, I think there's really yeah. a, a lot of great stuff coming out. Big fan of Kevin Barry and Donal Ryan, Ryan myself. Anyway, uh, and they've obviously had a good record, um, depending on your politics. The last Irish winner, Anna Burns, uh, from Northern Ireland, yes. with the milkman. And before that, Anne Enright, Jean, John Banville, Roddy Doyle. And also, slightly controversially, it's certainly all Irish websites claim this Irish Murdoch who was born in Dublin of <laughs> Irish parents but moved to England when she was a few weeks old. Definitely counts as an Irish writer. But I found one Irish. By Oxford. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Irish Central, the biggest website for <laughs> Irish Americans, uh, certainly claims her as, as the first Irish winner of the... Anyway, uh, so let's have a look at each of these. And what we're going to do is um, introduce, gives a bleak, brief flavour and in a slightly speed datey style any immediate reactions you have. So the first Irish novel that's down is Paul Lynch's Prophet Song, which is set in a sort of Increasingly totalitarian, I think, uh, dystopian island. According to the back, it says here, On a dark, wet evening in Dublin, scientist and mother of four, Elish Stack, answers her front door to find the GNSB on her step. Two officers from the newly formed secret police are there to interrogate her husband, a trade unionist. And, sure enough, first bit is, The night has come and she has not heard the knocking, standing at the window looking out onto the garden. How the dark gathers without sound the cherry trees. It gathers the last of the leaves, and the leaves do not resist the dark, but accept the dark in whisper. Tired now, the day almost behind her, all that still has to be done before bed and the children settled in the living room, this feeling of rest for a moment by the glass. And obviously the secret police are on the way. Does that, does that sound of interest? Oh, it sounds beautiful. Oh, I'm, this is one of those that I'm going to read. I haven't read it yet. Um, I would question the... Pre I, I, I would have thought Ireland did have a secret service given, uh, but let's leave that bit. <laughs> no, let's, let's, let's not. I thought it was a dystopian Ireland. Ireland is falling apart. The country is in a grip of government turning towards tyranny. That's a little harsh on, <laughs> on what's going on at the moment, is it? No, I was very genuinely curious. You, you can hear it from my accent. I spent the first six years of my life in Cork. And what's funny is I think there's another knock on the door coming with the next book that you're about to... No, no spoilers, please, Fred. Uh, the next one is uh, uh, the oldest book of hand on the um, shortlist, which is Sebastian Barry, uh, Old God's Time. And this one, yes, this is, yes, you're right, a, a knock on the door. A recently retired policeman, Tom Kettle, is settling into the quiet of his new home, a lean-to annexed to a Victorian castle overlooking the Irish Sea. For months he has barely seen a soul, catching only glimpses of his eccentric landlord and a nervous young mother who have moved in next door. Occasionally fond memories return, of his family, his beloved wife June, and their two children. But then... <laughs> but when two form former colleagues turn up at his door with questions about a decades-old case, 
one which Tom never quite came to terms with, he finds himself pulled into the darkest currents of his past. A beautiful haunting novel in which nothing is quite as it seems. It starts off, uh, sometime in the 60s, old Mr. Tomalty would put up an incongruous lean-to in addition to his Victorian castle. It was a granny flat of modest size, but with some nice touches, befitting a putative relative. The carpentry at least was excellent, and one wall was encased in something called beauty board, its veneer capturing light and mutating it into soft brown darkness. Uh, I suspect the appeal of this will be how much you like Sebastian Barry anyway, really. Well, I don't know. I um, So, spoiler alert to our listeners, we, we got the long list a little bit earlier, <laughs> ahead of time. Uh, and yesterday, I got it. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I ran to my local dawn um, to see how many of them I could flick through. And um, I've, I've read The Secret Scripture, but I'm not particularly au fait with um, Sebastian Barry's work. But I did take this home on the basis of a sentence that, you know, I opened the page randomly, it, it came up and the main character's shame or maybe anxiety was flickering modestly like a candle. It's just, I mean, his prose is gorgeous. But more than that, I'm always really intrigued by the idea of a book and novel that perhaps leans into the area of genre fiction. It's not particularly what one associates with the Booker Prize, particularly a sort of detective novel, even though, I mean, you were talking about Eleanor Catton, I think there's a case to be made for the luminaries being a detective novel. I'm always very curious um, to, to read a book a book that, goes more in the direction of sort of mass popular culture, perhaps the way that we were talking about Vernon Godlittle. Uh, well, or, well, yeah, well, this does sound this, you know, like a, the old cop who's the case he could never yeah. quite get out of his mind, um, the, the cold case. I think it does explore a lot of familiar themes. In the, I mean, this sort of thing, in, in, in this quite well-trodden path in Irish writing, which is the sort of uncovering, the stuff from the past that is sort of bubbling up. And, and Have you, you've read the book? Be, uh, yeah, oh, right, right. so I should probably not say too much more. <laughs> no, 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 I, would say I enjoyed it. You should. I enjoyed it, and it was very. Um, it, it's not quite. I mean, the genre thing. It sort of moves in different ways compared to what you might expect from genre, in that it does doesn't sort of follow a set necessarily set course. And I had different expectations of it when I read the blurb, and then what was actually delivered, and how it would come to me. So that was intriguing in how the how the narrative is delivered. It's got it's got unicorns in it. I hear. Well, it's it's all over. It ends up in America. I should actually stop. That. Okay, but it has got unicorns, yeah. and you can confirm the presence of unicorns. I, I may have seen a unicorn. <laughs> Gosh, you're very cagey. Uh, third, third Irish book, Elaine Feeney's How to Build a Boat, and it starts. Jamie said, "When I grow up, I will be as tall as these trees." And he sprawled fast like a salamander along a trunk. He climbed to the first branch, when Owen said, "Where were Jamie? Careful!" and lifted the boy back to the ground. Owen, Jamie said. Did you know that resin from trees makes arrow tops and they're so hard they can go right through you? No, I didn't know that, Owen said. Um, so I think from what I've, I've read, it's he then comes up against sort of forces of repression. and. Mm. But it sort of puts that first paragraph puts me in mind of something like Lanny by Max Porter. Do we like the, do we like the sound of this? I'm intrigued. <laughs> but I, but I, I again, um, I, I know Elaine, so, so I feel I. So you like it very much. I, okay, I'll just reserve to, I'll just stand neutral. And then another, another, um, perhaps more established name, Paul Murray, who I think was, on uh, certainly nominated for the Booker with Skippy Dies, which is a big, uh, big and terrific book about uh, schoolboys. And this one, I believe, is a sort of return to the big 
family friends novel. And according to the jacket, the Barnes family is in trouble. Dickie's once lucrative car business is going under. But rather than face the music, he's spending his days in the woods building an apocalypse-proof bunker with a renegade handyman. His wife Imelda is, sell- is selling off her jewellery on eBay and half-heartedly dodging the attentions of fast-talking cattle farmer Big Mike, <laughs> while their teenage daughter Cass, formerly top of her class, seems determined to binge drink her way to her final exams. Does sound like an Irish family saga, this not <laughs> And 12-year-old PJ, in debt to local sociopath Ears Morgan, is putting the final touches to his grand plan to run away from home. Uh, the presence is in meltdown, but the causes lie deep in the past. And it begins. In the next town over, a man had killed his family. He'd nailed the doors shut so they couldn't get out. The neighbours heard them running through the rooms, screaming for mercy. When he had finished, he turned the gun on himself. Well, I'm in. <laughs> I just, yes. I, I'll take it off you now. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I like him and I love the sound of this. Yeah, mm. I do too. I'm reading for Imelda. I probably will. <laughs> no, I'm in. I'm okay, not. good. Okay. So the, the most enthusiasm, I think, on the Irish were for uh, Paul Lynch and Paul Murray, but, but with, with, with distinct interest in the other two. We love a Paul. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. So now we come to the next uh, round of our speed dating with the debuts on this year's Booker Prize long list. And we're starting off with Pearl by Sean Hughes. So the premise is that Marianne is eight years old when her mother goes missing. Left behind with her baby brother and grieving father in a ramshackle house on the edge of a small village, she clings to the fragmented memories of her mother's love, the smell of fresh herbs, the games they played, and the songs and stories of her childhood. As time passes, Marianne struggles to adjust, fixated on her mother's disappearance and the secrets she's sure her father is keeping from her. Discovering a medieval poem called Pearl and trusting in its promise of consolation, Marianne sets out to make a visual illustration of it, a task that she returns to over and over, but somehow never manages to complete. And we've got our first paragraph, ooh, which has a little prologue ahead of it. So, The Wakes. Adam and Eve and Pinchme went down to the river to bathe. Adam and Eve were drowned. Who do you think was saved? At the end of every summer, I take Susanna back to my home village for a sort of carnival called The Wakes. There's a fancy dress parade and a few fairground rides. A whole ox is roasted on a spit in the playing field. When I was a child, there was a thing called the pram race. The rules of the race were a team of two men to push a pram to the next village and back, one running, one in the pram. They both had to drink a pint of beer at every pub along the way. Each two-man team dressed as a mother and baby, one of them in a grotesque old nighty filled with balloon breasts, with smeared on lipstick and hair in curlers, the other in a bib, bonnet and bath towel nappy. What an image. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 sounds, sounds all right to me. Small mm-hmm. Cheshire villages might be having their moment as well, yes. we had uh, Treacle Walker, didn't we? Yeah, yeah I, I, that's curious. I, I believe she's, she's a published poet, right? Uh, and this is her first debut fiction so that's but i'm always intrigued by that because that's something i also learned from the international booker is just different use of language that that sort of extra I've, I've, I've got a slight published poet so i'm always a little bit alarmed when they start when they write novels They're, you, you know, think they should stay in their lane or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely how dare you i just crowding out the battlefield poetic prose it's just one of my once they do memoir <laughs> yeah no poetic prose no, I'm never entirely sure. Oh. But this, this also isn't the medieval poem Pearl that that's I think based on. Did oh, I, I did at university? Yeah, yeah. I, I've never heard of um, 
by the same passing by. This is the wonderful thing, actually, is you're seeing things that you, I have to confess, one might have missed. Next up, we've got If I Survive You by Jonathan Escafri, and it's 1979. Topper and Sanya flee to Miami as political violence consumes their native Kingston, Jamaica. But they soon learn that the welcome in America will be far from warm. Trelawney, their youngest son, comes of age in a society which regards him with suspicion and confusion, greeting him with the puzzled question, What are you? Their eldest son, Delano's longing for a better future for his own children is equalled only by his recklessness in trying to secure it. As both brothers navigate the obstacles littered in their path, an unreliable father, racism, a financial crisis and Hurricane Andrew, they find themselves pitted against one another. Will their rivalry be the thing that finally tears their family apart? And our first paragraph is... It begins with what are you, hollered from the perimeter of your front yard when you're nine, younger, probably. You'll be asked again throughout junior high school and high school, then out in the world in strip clubs and food courts, over the phone and at various menial jobs. The askers are expectant. They demand immediate gratification. Their question lifts you slightly off your pre-adolescent toes, tilting you, not just because you don't understand it, but because even if you did understand this question, you wouldn't yet have an answer. I've got a mad, I've got, uh, just as a slight, slight prejudice against poetic prose, slight prejudice in favour of second person, actually. I, I like second person narration a lot. Um, so I, 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 I'm in. I mean, the controversy about this is that, it, is it short stories or is it a novel, isn't it? If you wanted to, f but it's intricate short stories, that's fine, of course. Does that matter? I, no, not to me, but just, just yeah. watch for yeah. a few articles coming like. up, I bet. Isn't there another book, a novel that had a similar controversy? History of the world in ten and a half chapters, Martin. Mm. I'm intrigued by this. I had marked this one out when I, uh, as one that we need to have a look at because it's uh, it's not in it's not out in the UK yet. So I'm very excited by this, and I'm less bothered by um, anything about whether it's short stories or not. I don't know, James. I think I have to sort of slightly disagree with your your whole bit against poetic prose. So I think it's <laughs> I think coming it's, back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just let me get that bee out of my bonnet. I think it's great grounds for invention. It's it's it, it, it's a prejudice that can be conquered by the book, but but, but if, of course, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, but if if it says on the on the dust flap, this is you know a former poet brings all their gifts of poetry to bear on this wonderful tale. I think oh god, uh, but, but, but 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 then sometimes they actually do, so that's fine. I think that was a stunning first paragraph, and yeah, actually, so do I. it seems to be endorsed by um, many a booker writer, Marlon yeah. James, Percival Everett. So next up, we've got Western Lane by Chetna Maru. And before I read, I do have to say if. You know, you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but this is so groovy. <laughs> it reminds me of a disco ball. It's two sleeping girls curled up in this sort of hollow. And then there are tiles which spring out from them that are orange and purple and grey. And I just think if I went into a bookshop, this would be the first thing I pick up. So well done. 11 year old Goppy has been playing squash since she was old enough to hold a racket. When her mother dies, her father enlists her in a quietly brutal training regimen and the game becomes her world. Slowly, she grows apart from her sisters. Her life is reduced to the sport, guided by its rhythms, the serve, the volley, the drive, the shot and its echo. But on the court, she is not alone. She is with her pa. She is with Jed, a 13-year-old boy with his own formidable talent. She is with the players who have come before her. She is in awe. I don't know if you've ever stood in the middle of a squash court on the tee, 
and listen to what is going on next door. What I'm thinking of is the sound from next court of a ball hit clean and hard. It's a quick, low pistol shot of a sound with a close echo. The echo, which is the ball striking the wall of the court, is louder than the shot itself. This is what I hear when I remember the year after our mother died and our father had us practising at Western Lane two, three, four hours a day. That's a, that's a, that sounds that sounds really good to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean there's obviously instant judgments. And then the, the Mighty Waltzer by Howard Jacobson, which is my favourite of his novels, is uh, set in the world of table tennis, of adolescent table tennis, and it is terrific. And the way <laughs> a sport that you sort of half know is brought to life as well as all the other mm-hmm. stuff that's going on and the reason why they're playing it. But I, I mean, I dipped in just briefly before before we met, and uh, I, I read on actually because it just tr- swept you in. It was, so I'm intrigued by that. Um, so I've got. To, I'm conscious though that I'm saying yes to everything. So I've got to, are we allowed to say no? I mean, <laughs> yes, we are. That's that's one we one of the remits of this podcast is we are occasionally allowed to say no. <laughs> No, I, I would I would definitely go for it on the basis of those. I think you, you like the cover. You're going for the I, no, it's not even the cover. I'm just a fan of using a, a physical conceit to drive sentences forward. And so I really like this idea of the rhythm of a ball going back and forth across the court being something yeah. that formally influences the yeah. novel or even the idea of the game of squash um, formally structuring the novel. Um, so definitely I'm a... I'm hugely intrigued in that. I, mean, I might just note in passing that there is a big trend in non-fiction at the moment, particularly commercial non-fiction, is that people get over grief by taking up something. Um, I thought it was going on nature walks. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it could be anything. You know, yeah. Isn't that just an extension of flaneuring? I'm yeah. so sick of reading books about flaneuring. No, there's a, there's yeah. a lot of her husband died and she took up wild swimming or, yeah. you know, <laughs> or a child, child died and they I, took up ceramics. I can tell you on good authority, there's lots of people who go to Wales. And... <laughs> And our final debut is Victoria Lloyd Barlow's All the Little Bird Hearts. Sunday Forrester lives with her 16-year-old daughter Dolly in the house she grew up in. She does things more carefully than most people. On quiet days, she must eat only white foods. Her etiquette handbook guides her through confusing social situations, and to escape, she turns to her treasury of Sicilian folklore. The one thing very much out of her control is Dolly, her clever, headstrong daughter, now on the cusp of leaving home. Into this carefully ordered world step Vita and Rollo, a couple who move in next door, disarm Sunday with their charm and proceed to deliciously break just about every rule in Sunday's book. Soon they are in and out of each other's homes and Sunday feels loved and accepted like never before. But beneath Vita and Rollo's polish lies something else, something darker, for Sunday has precisely what Vita has always wanted for herself, a daughter of her own. Oh. Sounds a bit Rosemary's Baby, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so we've got our uh, first paragraph headed, well, I think this section is headed, Fire Can Be Mistaken for Light, and it's headed the Lake District. It was only three years ago that I saw Vita for the first time. The day began as all my days always did then, greeting a daughter for whom adolescence meant allowing me increasingly smaller glimpses of herself. I woke her before showering and dressing, then, predictably, had to wake her for a second time before going downstairs. I was in a long-standing white food routine that summer, and my meals typically comprised various breakfasts, toast, cereal or crumpets. On days when food does not have to be dry, scrambled eggs or omelettes can also count as white. 
I cannot tell if it is a day on which an egg is a white food until I hold one in my hand. It is a small but real joy to me that as an adult I can decide without explanation whether eggs qualify as white and therefore edible on any given day. Without being told I am making a show... Oh, how odd. Sorry. Without being told I am making a show of myself, that I am hysterical, attention-seeking, and to be ignored until I eat something that is violently coloured. There's a very um, sort of... Uh, it, it tripped me up, uh, a sentence break, and then a sort of new clause that begins, so on any given day, full stop, and then without being told I'm making a show of myself. It's just not where I would have put a full stop, but I wonder mm. if in a way the prose is supposed, supposed to reflect neurodivergent uh, uh, thoughts. Uh, uh, I suspect it probably is. Yeah, yeah, I can see that a appealing to a lot of people, especially younger readers um, who are sort of a lot more um, at ease with talking about any neurodivergencies that they have. It's difficult. I mean, it's, I, it's interesting that you said that because when you were reading, I noticed there was that sort of moment where you sort of were sort of recalibrating and it suggests that maybe as one goes in, there's going to be more to come. I mean, may, I, I, I just don't know. I haven't sort of read a lot around this, but you, you've mentioned that the, the, the author is neurodiverse and it's going to deal with those issues. Perhaps there's going to be a bit more using language, using grammar to kind of reflect that. So I'd be interested to, you know, maybe we don't have the time now, but if you've read a, no, if you've been no, able no. to read a bit more, we could have maybe seen is that where she's taking it. So now we'll move on to um, Fred's pile of novels. To which category am I in? I've forgotten. Uh, you're in the, uh, this is where it starts to get random. Irish pretty good. Debbie pretty good. You're on globe trotting. Oh, that's very <laughs> suitable, yeah. The FT is very global, and I'm very good. Cork to God knows where. Um, so I'm going to start with Paul Harding, This Other Eden, which comes garlanded with great praise uh, for him and uh, his past works, including from the FT. Not that I was aware of that. So it's not. Um, the profoundly moving story of an island refuge and a community of outcasts living on borrowed time set at the beginning of the 20th century and inspired by historical events tells the story of Apple Island, an enclave off the coast of the United States where waves of castaways in flight from society and its judgment have landed and built a home. Full of lyricism and power, this other Eden explores the hopes and dreams and resilience of those seen not to fit in a world brutally intolerant of difference. So let's go in. I, I, if it's all right with you, I will ignore the uh, prologue from the Main Coast Heritage Trust, which is quite long, or do, are you all... Uh, deal. Uh, deal, 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 deal. I want to go straight in. Benjamin Honey, American Bantu, Ibu, born enslaved, freed or fled at 15, only he ever knew. Ship's carpenter, aspiring orchidist, arrived on the island with his wife Patience Nee Rafferty, Galway girl, in 1793. He brought his bag of tools, gifts from a grateful captain he had saved from drowning, or plunder from a ship on which he had mutinied and murdered the captain, depending on who said, and a watertight wooden box containing twelve jute pouches. Each pouch held seeds for a different variety of apple. Honey collected the seeds during his years as a field worker and later as a sailor, he remembered being in an orchard as a child, although not where or when, with his mother, or with a woman whose face over the years had become what he pictured as his mother's, and he remembered the fragrance of the trees and their fruit. The memory became a vision of the garden to which he meant no to return. No mystery, it was Eden. Years passed and he added seeds to his collection, 
He recited the names at night before he slept. Ashmeads, Colonel, Flower of Kent, Duchess of Oldenburg, and Warner's King, Ballyfatten, Catshead. Well, this is based on an interesting true story I did read up a bit about. Oh, Ma- right. Okay. Malaga Island off Maine, which I think had been uh, so, sort of settled by, I want to say, runaway slaves, ex-slaves. Uh, anyway, people from all over, uh, as, as, as that mixed thing. And then in 1912, it was more or less wiped out by the state of Maine and, and the people were, were taken oh, away okay. and sort of dodgy scientific experiments were carried out on the people there. I mean, that, that sounds a very interesting story to me. Uh, I, 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 I've, got, I've got a prejudice on this one too. <laughs> our, 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 and it is, it just seems something slightly needy about our, the idea that we're the best generation ever, you know, how terrible people were in the, you know what I mean? A bit, you know. Please tell us we're the best people who ever lived. Please, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have made these. We wouldn't have made these mistakes. Yeah, There's something never happened with us, yeah. um, I, 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 which I find a Joe, little bit what do you think? easy. Oh, sounds like there's an unreliable narrator in there. But if that's the case, I always expect something a bit um, sort of more exciting, something that pulls me up and makes me wonder. And whilst it is very beautiful. It, it does so far seem slightly tame. But then again, Harding is a is a Pulitzer winner. So what do I know? So we move on to Ayabami Adebayo, A Spell of Good Things, which was published earlier this year. The writer is um, from Nigeria and part of a whole new generation uh, that is uh, coming through in, in Nigerian literature and is getting a lot of attention. Adebayo unveils a dazzling story of modern Nigeria and two families caught in the riptides of wealth, power, romantic obsession and political corruption. Eniola is tall for his age, a boy who looks like a man. His father has lost his job, so he spends his days running errands for the local tailor, collecting newspapers and begging, dreaming of a big future. Goes on to describe then there's there's a girl who is a golden girl who's the perfect child of a wealthy family and now an exhausted young doctor in her first year of practice. And she's beloved by Kunle, the volatile son of family friends. So it sets up a sort of quite um, complex scene, I think, but very vivid. And the first paragraph is, after one of her apprentices read the notice of meeting out loud to her, Cairo threw it across the room into a dustbin. Some politician's wife wanted to give a talk to the tailoring association and their president had agreed to welcome the woman to their next meeting. And, of course, the president thought it meant something to mention that this politician's wife was the daughter of a tailor. Kara was almost sure this was a lie. Those people would claim to be your kinsmen if it would help them get into power. It irritated her that they would waste time listening to this woman campaigning for her husband. This was not why she paid her tailoring association dues. <laughs> I'm in. You're in. Um, I, I, I do like a a modern Nigerian novel, actually, as well. Uh, particularly of a kind of sort of sociological, political climate, it sounds as if this is. It, it, I mean, it sounds fabulous, but one of these days, and this might be actually spitting in an entire tradition of African literature, um, I, I would love to read an African novel, maybe even particularly a Nigerian novel, that wasn't also, uh, at the same time, a commentary on an entire nation. It um, does sound like a state of the nation book. This. Yes, I, 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 I would I, just I, love I, to read like a local sort of, you know, concerned purely within the structures of a particular family dynamic or existential crisis. African novel. For that reason, I'm, I'm afraid I'm in. I'm going to disagree with you on this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love that. Um, right, shall we quickly move on to yeah. the last one of mine in the global category, Tan Tuan Eng, and I should declare Tan 
was a fellow judge on the International Booker, and we're sort of mates now. So um, this is a wonderful novel, <laughs> The House of Doors. <laughs> I have read beautifully presented, seeing you like yes, it. Yes, I have it at uh, home. Wonderful. It's gorgeous. Um, and it's called The House of Doors. And the publisher's blurb is as follows. It is 1921, and at Cassowary House in the Straits Settlements of Penang, Robert Hamlin is a well-to-do lawyer and his steely wife Leslie is society hostess. Their lives are invigorated when Willie, an old friend of Robert's, comes to stay. Willie Somerset Maughan is one of the greatest writers of his day, but he's beleaguered by an unhappy marriage, ill health and business interests that have all gone badly awry. He's also struggling to write. The more Leslie's friendship with Willie grows, the more clearly she sees him as he is, a man who has no choice but to mask his true self. Then I'll go straight to the first paragraph. Um, it needs to say the book does begin with uh, a line from Somerset Maugham. Fact and fiction are so intermingled in my work that now, looking back on it, I can hardly distinguish one from the other. And then the book itself, uh, having told us that it's largely set in uh, Penang, Malaysia in the 1920s, it actually opens uh, with the character Leslie in South Africa in 1947. A story, like a bird of the mountain, can carry a name beyond the clouds, beyond even time itself. Willie Maughan said that to me many years ago. He has not appeared in my thoughts in a long time, but as I gaze at the mountains from my stoop on this autumn morning, I can hear his thin, dry voice, his diction precise, correct, like everything else about him. In my memory I see him again on his last night in our old house on the other side of the world, the two of us on the veranda behind the house, talking quietly. The full moon, a coracle of light adrift above the sea. Everyone else in the house had already retired to bed. When morning came, he sailed from Penang, and I never saw him again. Uh, I have to fess up and say I've already got this at home. <laughs> and um, I, I bought it purely because I, I seem to be having a good year with historical fiction and I love the idea of a sort of meta fiction of a story within a story and the mixing of um, real life into an imagined narrative and you know I'm a child of auto fiction so that <laughs> appeals to me I think it sounds absolutely gorgeous I mean, you had me at it is 1921 in the Straits of Penang. And then, and then, not only that, he brought in Somerset Maugham, yeah. uh, who uh, I've, I've read some of his stuff, and obviously he's a massive yeah. figure in his day, not so much now. Completely enormously wealthy from his writing, wasn't he? I did read well, it. Well, but the book partly deals with that. I mean, it alludes to it, and I won't give it away too much, but, but he no, made no, a lot of money and then didn't all go so well. No, uh, I mean, he's a, he's, he's, he's fascinating. It, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe of all of them. And he does a great job. That sounds a bit um, off, uh, dismissive of um, of actually restoring Somerset Maugham, actually, from a, a, a modern readership, you know, because he would be one of those figures who, you know, has sadly sort of drifted yeah, out. A complete name, yeah. um, just a name. And it brings him back and, and as well as just without being too heavy handed, kind of directs you towards some of his work. And, and I mean, one of the key elements in the plot is one of his central work. So and and you, do tend to, you do tend to think of him as, I don't know, sort of the, the kind of writer, you know, with a long cigarette holder and a, I mean, and, it, and a dressing gown. He's not, he's not just this sort of posh, Oh, no, no, and that tough, comes out, uh, yeah. it's much more complex. Yeah, very complex and, and very interesting. And I think the other thing is it does, it's not uncomplicated. I mean, this is sort of partly a, a story from the veranda, and it is sundowners, and it is 
you know, the imperial twilight. But this author manages to handle that in a very good way. And a book, a book that mentions the you know, being on a veranda early doors. <laughs> yeah, that's marvel- absolutely marvellous. And, and so now we're, we're going to remedy the complaints of the Scottish people with a category of um, novels from Scottish authors. No, no, it's not even that, I'm afraid, Joe. I uh, was struggling a bit by this point. It's, 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 it's authors who live in Scotland. Oh, authors who live in Scotland. <laughs> uh, one of whom is Scottish and one of whom I think is Canadian. But, uh, living in, authors who live in Scotland, perfectly solid category. Uh, we start with Sarah Bernstein's Study for Obedience. Um, Sarah Bernstein was also included on this year's um, Granter, Best of Young British Novelists. Um, a young woman moves from the place of her birth to the remote northern country of her forebears to be a housekeeper to her brother, whose wife has recently left him. Soon after her arrival, a series of inexplicable events occurs. Collective bovine hysteria, the demise of a ewe and her nearly born lamb, a local dog's phantom pregnancy, a potato blight. She notices that the local suspicion about incomers in general seems to be directed with some intensity at her, and she senses a mounting threat that lies just beyond the garden gate. And as she feels the hostility growing, pressing at the edges of her brother's property, she fears that should rumblings in the town gather themselves into a more defined shape, who knew what might happen, what one might be capable of doing? Our first uh, paragraph goes... It was the year the sow eradicated her piglets. It was a swift and menacing time. One of the local dogs was having a phantom pregnancy. Things were leaving one place and showing up in another. It was springtime when I arrived in the country. An east wind blowing, an uncanny wind as it turned out. Certain things began to arise. The pigs came later, though not much, and even if I had only recently arrived, had no livestock caretaking responsibilities had only been in to look, safely, on one side of the electric fence. I knew they were right to hold me responsible. But all that, as I said, came later. Thoughts? Feelings? I've I've discovered prejudices I never realised I had, ever. (laughs) Uh, Unnamed countries. (laughs) What's that point to them? No, um, it's like those um, 18th century books where I was born in the town of W... Yeah. You know, dash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us the name of the town. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I believe it turns out that sort of Jewish and there's memories of the Holocaust in this unnamed place. A bit of puzzlement in the reviews I read as to what on earth the country could be. It, it seems to be yeah. sort of understandably unnamed because it doesn't really fit any of them. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know about this one, I must say. Yeah, I'm, I'm puzzled a bit, I'll be honest. I So I, this is uh, another of the novels that I picked up in Daunt and took home and I took it home mainly as a point of curiosity because of the drama around the Granta list and I haven't read any of Sarah Bernstein's work before and so I have read the first few pages of this and was actually quite unconvinced but that being said reading it again now I feel my mind slightly changing which is sort of meant to be the hallmark of a book and novel rereadability mm. and the ability to read something new into a book so I, I think I'm going to you know, take it off my shelf (laughs) rather than run to a bookshop. And then our um, final long-listed novel is In Ascension by Martin McInnes. Lee grew up in Rotterdam, drawn to the waterfront as an escape from her unhappy home life and volatile father. Enchanted by the undersea world of her childhood, she excels in marine biology, travelling the globe to study ancient organisms. When a trench is discovered in the Atlantic Ocean, Lee joins the exploration team, hoping to find evidence of the Earth's first life forms. What she instead finds calls into question everything we know about her own beginnings. 
Her discovery leads Lee into the Mojave Desert, and an ambitious new space agency. Drawn deeper into the agency's work, she learns that the Atlantic Trench is only one of several related phenomena from across the world, each piece linking up to suggest a pattern beyond human understanding. Lee knows that to continue working with the agency will mean leaving behind her declining mother and her younger sister, and faces an impossible choice to remain with her family or to embark on a journey across the breadth of the cosmos. Um, well, so we have our first bit of science fiction, maybe. I was born in the lowest part of the country, 22 feet beneath the sea. When my sister arrived three years later, we moved south into the city proper, Rotterdam's northern district. The land was newly excavated, freshly claimed from the sea floor, dredged by ships and reinforced by concrete. Part of the street came loose, the ground underneath still soft. I remember burning incense, a brackish smell indoors, as if every moment were a spell, a scene that had to be called into being. I, I, I don't know. What? Uh, what? I, I, oh, it's just, I, I don't know about the opening bit. That Big was bo- great, James. Yeah, no, it, sounds, it sounds like, no, hold on a minute. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't say it wasn't great. So just, yeah? Yeah, but just the blurb got me more than the opening sentence. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd agree. I was intrigued and I've got a, you're probably both going to, sigh when I said I'm sort of intrigued by all these, these, these sort of weirdly undiscovered bits of, you know, these sort of deep trenches in nature, yeah, that sort great. of, you know, what was the um, deep time, they were all there, which were non-fiction, there were all these non-fiction books about that. that, that totally caught my imagination a few years ago, and I sort of was wondering if it was going to, how much it was going to go into that. Here's a, here's a hard question, but just I'll leave dangling for everybody. Uh, how many book and novels have take, taken place in outer space? Uh, in the meantime, we, we probably need to make some decisions then. Yeah. We, we come to the end of that dash, that speed dating dash through 13 no- novels of accomplishment and much effort from the authors and so on. We are each going to choose one that really, really we like the sound of. Um, and uh, seeing as guests go first, Fred, what would you like to do? Okay, well, the first thing I'm going to do is make my life a little bit easier because I've got far too many choices that I'd want to make. I'm going to remove my past dates. <laughs> the books that I've read, yeah. we've already moved on. We're, so we're out of that the, relationship. The okay. exes. The exes. No, I like your persistence with um, the metaphor. And that's The House of Doors and Old God's House Time. House of Doors and Old God's Time. Two fine books. would recommend that now, now you've got me, though, because I've got several that I really... And you're going to uh, have to... The rules say I have to choose one, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> Rule, uh, rules have been overstated for, rules, the, for yeah. the random uh, nature of this okay, podcast. Okay, I had four on my sort of hot list, um, which were Paul Murray, The Beasting, If I Survive You, Jonathan Escoffrey, Prophet Song, Paul Lynch, and Elaine Feeney's How to Build a Boat, but I am going to go for Prophet Song. Perfect. Uh, and just to make it even harder, Joe, you can't pick the same book as anybody else. Oh, great. Um, I, I'm going to follow Fred's logic here and say that um, I've, I've bought a fair few of these, therefore I'm sort of, but I haven't read them. I'm going to say that I'm in situationships with some of them. <laughs> Those are uh, uh, The House of Doors, Old God's Time, and uh, the Sarah Bernstein, uh, which is Study for Obedience. So having uh, sort of already messed them about a bit, uh, out of the remainder, I would say that I'm really torn between... I'm actually quite surprised at myself. I'm torn between... All the little bird hearts, because I'm really keen to see how a neurodivergent sentence structure works. 
And I'm Torn Between In Ascension by Martin McInnes. And this is sort of what I love about Booker is that I think everything that I read for it is so outside um, my rather bougie lit woman tastes. And uh, I'm going to go for it in Ascension uh, just because, as you say, James, I, I don't know that I've ever read a book and novel in space. And I think I'm fairly curious to see how climate change literature is going to evolve over the next few years uh, and how that subject is going to be handled broadly within publishing. OK, and I'm torn between a spell of good things if I survive you. And my top two, probably The Bee Sting and The House of Doors. But let's face it, Somerset more on a veranda in Penang. <laughs> it's got to be The House of Doors by uh, Tan Tuan Eng. Well, we've made our choices and now it's time for you to make yours. Please do get in touch, whether it's through Twitter, the comment section of wherever you're listening to the to this podcast, or even email to tell us which one of the book a dozen, or in this case, book a 13, you'll be taking home. Uh, well, thanks for, very much, uh, Fred, for joining us today. It was great to have you. It was great to be no, here. I really, really enjoyed having you. Um, should say that the shortlist uh, of six books will be announced on September the 21st. We'll definitely have a podcast about that, and we'll even have read the books by then. <laughs> yes. So that, that will be good. Imagine. <laughs> and, uh, and the winner will be announced on November the 26th. That's it for this week. If you haven't already followed the show, please do, and remember to leave a rating. You can find us at thebookerprizes.com and on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Substack at The Booker Prizes. Join us next week where we'll be discussing our book of the month for August, Loitering with Intent by Muriel Spark. Until then, bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy's Soupy Op production for The Booker Prizes. <laughs>